It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show, the Science and Solutions Show, are now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Winnigal and I'm joined today by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay and hello listeners. Now, Alan Pears, AM, is one of Australia's best-regarded energy efficiency experts. He has worked in the sustainable energy and environmental fields since the late 1970s and been an expert advisor to federal, state and local governments across Australia, as well as community groups and the private sector. He is a senior industry fellow at RMIT University and a regular public commentator on energy efficiency issues. Hi, Alan. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Kay. Alan, last year we experienced a cruel summer in Australia, and this year we're shaping up for another, and actually we're living it, as climate change continues to play out. The costs have been high, are accumulating and diverse, as raging fires, human tragedy, ecological destruction, economic impacts and environmental damage have compounded. Where are we heading, do you think? Is each year going to get worse? Well, every year won't be worse because the whole challenge is that there's year-to-year variability in weather. But the trends are very clear and uh, certainly uh, for the last 30 years we've had pretty clear evidence that the global heating is occurring and that the consequences are going to get worse and worse. So that's kind of what's playing out now. Alan, tell us about the International Energy Agency's first fuel. Well, the International Energy Agency is the main global energy expert body, lots of economists in it, and uh, their conclusion is that the least cost path to a Paris-level emission reduction really involves two big things. One, of course, being renewable energy that everyone knows about, but in fact they reckon that energy efficiency should deliver even more emission reduction than renewable energy. Uh, And so that's why they call energy efficiency the first fuel. It's the first thing you should do. Uh, In Australia, it's known as the forgotten fuel, I understand. Well, I call it the forgotten fuel. Most people don't even mention it. So, <laughs> um, yes, it's uh, Australia is a global laggard in energy efficiency. We, we can just about claim first prize as the worst performer. Well, we can claim that in many areas Indeed. of, of <laughs> climate um, action, mm. especially as we've got the last three Fossil of the Day awards at COP25, I understand. Ah, oh, we're great achievers, yes. But it is really sad to think that it's happening in the energy efficiency area because that that's the low-hanging fruit, as everybody says. Well... 
Anybody it's can the, do it's, it. It's the low-hanging fruit, but unfortunately it's the forgotten fuel because everyone in the energy debate and the climate debate in Australia focuses on supply side and renewables. And renewables are great, but if you halve the amount of energy you need, you can roll out a lot more replacement of fossil fuels with the renewables that you do put in place. So you're saying we, we could potentially halve through energy efficiency measures, the energy that we consume? Yeah, well, that's that's what the International Energy Agency is basically saying. Yeah, we could halve our energy use. Okay. Yep. Well, that's pretty amazing. No, it's pretty obvious if you do the work, as I do. <laughs> <laughs> would, it, would it be very costly to, no, this to is reduce the whole point. This our is... energy efficiency, to improve our energy efficiency to that extent? No, this is the whole point. It's the cheapest option. For example, in the recent review of the Appliance Efficiency Program, they estimated that we're saving, you know, billions of dollars a year at a carbon cost of minus $200 a tonne through appliance efficiency. So in other words, we're benefiting by $200 a tonne for every action we take in appliance efficiency. In industry, we found we were saving a billion dollars a year at minus $95 a tonne. And here we are paying $15 a tonne for the climate solutions fund that may not even be cutting emissions. So is this a, a fault in our economics that we don't probably attribute savings? No, it's a fault in our policy and our brains. Okay. Uh, we're, we're, you know, we are a supply-side culture. And the reality is, Aimo, every year... Their forecasts have gone down in terms of energy consumption, hasn't it? Yeah, since 2010, that's right. Pretty much every year the demand forecast goes down. And in fact, when you look at their future forecasts, they're basically pretty flat. But that's because they're not factoring in much energy efficiency because in Australia we do not have the research capability to accurately predict what's possible and to drive and the policy commitment to drive it. And so you're saying that's a research issue. It's it's research and policy and program implementation. It's all it's right the problem is very deep and pervasive. So along those lines there's a thing called an energy intensity improvement rate. What is that? Okay. Well, uh, that's a good question. We're going to get into detail here, aren't we? Um, so basically, if you think about a useful indicator is how much energy do we have to use to produce a dollar of economic output? Well, basically, if we use less energy per dollar of economic output, our energy intensity is declining. Right. And that's a good thing. And so we should be aiming. Uh, again, the International Energy Agency says globally, we should cost-effectively, with existing technology, be able to be cutting our energy intensity by about 3% per year. Okay. We're doing about 1%. Okay. So we are at least <laughs> heading in the right direction, but just not at the right rate. Mm, yeah. Alan, just looking at this report, which talks about the net saving of the GEMS, which is the Greenhouse and Energy Minimum Standards regulations to the Australian economy, mm. it ranged between one13 dollars and 2.15 billion dollars that is yep. with greenhouse gas emissions with savings between 4.8 and 7.6 million tons a year hmm. a year yeah and that's the equivalent of half of Queensland's annual household emissions yeah and that's without even trying isn't that amazing 
Well, that's what's so tragic about the forgotten fuel. You know, we are throwing money away at yeah. a massive rate because we are failing to drive efficiency improvement, in which is the low-hanging fruit and is profitable. Okay, well, let's get on to that mm. in terms of mm. buildings. And we've just talked about the extreme climate events that have led to blackouts and brownouts. Mm. And that you say they've exposed the vulnerabilities of our buildings and cooling equipment. Can you tell us more about that? Well, well, the problem is we're now facing a situation where extreme hot weather applies a lot of pressures both to the buildings and the energy supply infrastructure. So, for instance, almost all electricity supply failures happen in the local networks. It's not about running out of capacity to supply, mostly. I mean, every now and then it's a little. And so, so the issue we face is that in more extreme weather, our air conditioners are more likely to fail and the electricity grid is more likely to fail. And so it's more important that our houses and, and buildings are better designed so that they don't cook us as soon as the air conditioning fails, right? Mm. And so in that sense, we need to have a much stronger focus on high-performing buildings and buildings that work well in the hottest weather. And unfortunately, the accidental effect of our building energy regulations in recent times has to been, been to increase the cooling energy requirements of our new houses instead of decrease it. Oh, how is that so? What's well, because people might be aware we have a star rating scheme uh, using the NATHERS rating tools for under the regulations and all houses have to achieve a six star rating. Now, that sounds great, but actually would be illegal in most parts of the developed world. But putting so that to one side... Our rating is one of the worst in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the developed world. In the developed world. Um, but the thing is that that, an that energy rating is based on the overall annual heating and cooling requirement. So in much of Australia, if you design a building that works really well in winter and yeah. is awful in summer, you can get a six-star rating. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not so bad in Tasmania and Victoria, but elsewhere. Well, it's pretty bad in Victoria because the other problem with the rating scheme we have is that it's averaged over the whole house. So, for example, if you have a two-storey house, downstairs might work really well in summer and upstairs will be an oven. It is. And we have no... The regulatory system doesn't have anything to say about those things and the regulatory system doesn't have anything to say about limiting peak electricity demand or maintaining a decent level of comfort in extreme weather. And how can that be changed? Well, there's a small step forward because the National Construction Code, which is reviewed every three years, has just been changed. It hasn't quite come through all the states yet, but it's on the way. And that will require buildings to achieve moderately good performance separately in summer and winter while achieving the annual six-star rating. So there'll be more pressure to make buildings less uncomfortable in summer. But that won't deal with the reality of parts of buildings still being a lot worse than other parts. Um, so th there have been changes to the National Construction Code, but they don't go very far, and we've still got the six-star rating. That's pretty much it, yep. Uh, again, we need to keep in mind that the changes to the National Code are 
first of all approved at the national level, which has happened, but then each state government has to adopt them. And so they're still not quite in place. Mm. And of course, even when they're in place, you have to ask the question of how well they will be enforced. And I think many people might have views on that at present. One of the codes is the new energy efficiency requirements to reduce energy consumption in new buildings by up to 35%. Uh, this is with the commercial buildings. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, in, in some ways it's, it's kind of odd, but the progress under the building codes, there's a lot more progress un- for non-residential buildings, basically commercial buildings, than there is in the residential area. And does, uh, Sorry, Alan, does the commercial building component also cover like high-rise residential no, the, com- the commercial sector covers the common areas within commercial, within apartment buildings. Okay. And then each individual apartment has to get a rating. And basically, you, you're not allowed to have less than five stars in any apartment in a development. Uh, and the average has to be six stars. So that allows the west facing and the south facing apartments to squeak through. Okay, so the the benefits of the commercial buildings being mm. stronger is not flowing through no, to apartment buildings. Not to any residential. No. Um, so I'm sorry, I interrupted you talking about the commercial buildings. Mm. That there you are yeah. getting some mm. more successes in in that yeah, kind of yeah. construction. Yeah, yeah. So for for example, we've had the voluntary neighbours rating scheme for commercial buildings, which most commercial buildings used to be like one and a half or two stars and and really good buildings were like five and recently six stars. Well, the building code is now effectively requiring about five or even five and a half neighbours stars. You know, that's quite an impressive improvement. So with the commercial buildings, I see they're all covered in glass and Mm. glass is not as efficient as other materials in keeping the the heat in or out how do they get away how do they get to five stars well you know all improvements are always relative (laughs) Um, but what you've got to keep in mind is that a lot of commercial buildings actually generate quite a lot of heat within the building from the people and the lights and all of that and so having glass that lets heat leak out at certain times can offset the disadvantage of having it leak heat in at other times. And again, we're coming back to the fact that the building regulations don't talk about peak demand. They average it all over the whole year. And so the buildings that we're seeing that do have a fair bit of glass are achieving a performance level. Also, you do need to keep in mind that the glass that they're using on those buildings now is a lot better performing than it used to be, and it's a lot better performing than the glass that's in most houses. How much better? Uh, oh, three times less heat flow. So is that an equivalent of a, a stud wall or a... Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, the best advanced glazing is, in terms of conducted heat flow, is about a stud wall with a bit of reflective foil in it. Mm. But the radiant heat flow that's coming through it is still 
a couple of hundred watts per square meter. So mm. that's a single bar radiator for yeah. every five square meters. Yeah. And that's uh, that's partly why you see all these buildings with funny bits of white painty stuff all over the glass, because that's how they reduce the radiant oh. heat load without having to change away from the, the dream of the glass facade. Oh. Mm. So you can build glass buildings that leak and they're efficient. Uh Relatively. (laughs) The the problem is, again, this is where the building code doesn't talk about peak demand because these glass buildings can work quite well on average over the year. But on a hot, sunny day, they've got high peak demand. And so they are then overloading the electricity supply system and they are vulnerable if something fails. And if you add an interruption to power supply... To that, then you're back in that then nightmare scenario that the you're building. <laughs> yes, <laughs> which you have the option of doing in a commercial building as opposed to a residential. Exactly. Listeners, if you've just joined us, we're talking to Alan Pears about energy efficiency. So, Alan, is there a magic combination that um, sets our buildings up properly for those extreme summer and winter conditions? Is is there a sweet spot, or is it? Should we just be shooting for one or the other, particularly in Victoria? I guess, you know, these circumstances change across the nation depending on the tropical zones or the temperate zones. But for the temperate zones, is there a magic point? Well, look, I I don't, I mean, I don't think there's one solution. And in fact, I think the good thing is that if you use the right design tools and techniques and consult with the people who are going to be trying to use the building, there are quite a few different ways you can achieve results because, you know, some buildings have got access to the morning sun, which can be really nice at certain times. Others have got big buildings all around them. You know, there's a lot of complications to it, which is why everyone's using building modelling tools to, to come out with good solutions. But yes, you can, you can use adjustable shading, for example, which is really good in lots of situations. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so there's, there are ways around, there's solutions yeah. for this And there problems. are ways to retrofit existing poor-performing buildings, which okay. we've really not focused on much at all yet. Is that a lot more expensive than originally designing oh. good features in? If you're undoing dumb things and then redoing them, yes, it's generally more expensive. So let's get on to the housing then. We were talking about Nather's earlier so what role does that actually play in i mean you know you've got the ratings and so forth and okay well again the the building regulations specify a certain level of thermal energy use over the year so that's that's then converted into the star rating and you you actually have several options for how you can meet the building code So there are fairly simple recipes, like if you insulate the walls this much and you don't have windows too big and you do this and that, you can follow a recipe, which, you know, small builders do. Most people use the Natter's rating tool because it allows you to adapt and uh, effectively reduce the cost of achieving the star rating scheme or achieve a higher star rating at the same cost because you can play around with the materials, where you put the insulation, orientation of the glass and all of those kinds of things. So the Nathurst tool is a very powerful design tool 
and it's a bit sad really that that it's mainly used to achieve six stars and then get the rubber stamp when in fact you know you can use the NatHERS rating tool to get a lot of insights into how a building works and to achieve really really good buildings. So what's the relationship between the NatHERS tool and the National Construction Code? Okay tricky is the answer. So the National Construction Code refers to the NatHERS scheme as one option for how you can comply with it. Right. Right. So the building code doesn't depend on NatHERS. NatHERS is one option and it's the most widely used option because it does make a lot of sense to use it. And how does that tool account for differences in different zones or areas. Okay, well when you're when you're modeling a house in in Natters, you actually have to describe the floor area and the ceilings and the window placements and sizes and all the details of the house and you set up zones which are basically each room of the house. You then have a weather data file and essentially you run the building on an hourly basis doing all the mathematics of the heat flows until you end up having your annual consumption. And because you do actually model the actual performance of the building and in fact each room in the building every hour for the year, you can open up the files and you can see what the building was like, like what the bedroom's comfort was like. Yes. At certain times or on certain, in certain kinds of weather and, and all of those kinds of things. And that's why it's a, a really good design tool. It because, sounds incredibly powerful. Yeah, but most of that most power is not use used. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, most people don't know how to use it, from what I understand. Well, most people, you know, you get a cheap rating done and what you do is they feed it all in and tell you, yes, you've made your six stars. And do they and monitor you've got the rubber stamp. Well, there's no monitoring, of course, no. Um we so have could... design intent, and <laughs> clearly when people have looked at things like the flammable cladding, and, and there have been studies of energy as well, and basically there is very poor enforcement of the building. But code. not only that, there's very poor enforcement and no one's responsible, so therefore it always falls back to the taxpayer uh, well, it, to fix it, these problems. Well, first of all, it falls back on the occupant to pay the bills, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if we decide to fix them, <laughs> then there's a debate about who's going to pay. So how could we improve that enforcement aspect? Mm. Well, I think there's two things. One is we're now moving to a point where with modern data analytics and smart meters, we could actually identify if the building was working the way it was meant to. So we could pick up and go back and say, fix this building. So that would be one. Well, there'd have to be a regulation to say that the, they have to fix it, even well, if you know that it should be fixed. Absolutely. Well, well, again, strictly speaking, there's a building code and the building should be built to that. And if it's not, there should be mechanisms exactly. to, to fix and it. And there aren't. Well, and there never have been in the building industry. Uh, different people have different views about that. But uh, basically, it hasn't worked for consumers, let's be Yes. Let's put it that way, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, there's lots of regulations around that governments just don't seem to enforce. They're and is there. there is there an issue, too, with just education in terms of what mm. consumers can expect, but also what what builders, mm. their mm. understanding their requirements yeah. and the best way to get good yeah. effect impact look, for the consumer? Yeah, look, the consumer 
is very uninformed because, after all, you only buy a house a few times in your life. So you're not Let alone building one. Let alone build one. And the building industry is not terrific in its training. And at the same time, it's complicated. The National Construction Code is like over a thousand pages. <laughs> That's a big ask for anyone to take on board. It is. It's enormous. Especially builders. Well... Especially most people who don't read, read. thousand-page documents <laughs> with yeah. lots of links to Australian standards and a whole bunch of other things. Well, let's get on to mm. buildings, existing mm. buildings, Alan. Mm. Um, what can people do this summer in mm. terms of managing the heat mm. that yeah. we well, that's being forecast? Shade. <laughs> and um, light-coloured shade cloth is an amazing product. (laughs) Um, And so blocking out, I mean, it's like every, you know, one and a half square metres of window, if the sun's coming in, it's like hanging a single bar radiator on the wall and switching it on at the hottest time of the day. That's what you're doing. If you don't block out the heat, you have a problem. The other thing that's a bit of a hidden one is that a lot of our houses are very leaky, So if it's a 40-something degree day and it's a hot wind, the wind actually is very good at sucking heat, sucking air out of your building and replacing it with hot air. (laughs) So draft proofing and ceilings uh, and plus, of course, insulation. So they're the three things. You actually mentioned solar vests in one of your articles, cooling um, vests. Yeah, well, I think where we're going, I mean, this is not so much for ordinary people, but Mm. for people who are working outside, we're getting to a point where their bodies are right at the limits. (laughs) Mm. And so little vests that can keep them cool, either using stored cool, which are available, or with little solar panels that cool you continuously are starting to emerge. Oh, there you go. (laughs) We love this cool tech stuff. (laughs) So where can our listeners find out more, Alan, about all these energy efficiency aspects? Well, I I write a regular column in Renew magazine and quite a few articles, uh, which is the main one, and there's a few on the conversation. Alan, just before we go, I have one question for you. Air conditioners, my air conditioner at least, is rated to... Uh, 43 degrees or 42 mm-hmm. degrees mm-hmm. and then after that it apparently won't work anymore and that's so I when I want the air conditioning to work it won't but when I don't want it to work mm-hmm. it will is that yeah. well issue? well yeah I mean it comes down to the kind of refrigerant that's been used widely which is designed to work up to a temperature of 43 degrees which they all thought was good enough <laughs> mm. which is really scary this year and last year yes. and well one thing we can do is we can actually put spray wa- spray water on the I unit, which that. will drop the yeah. temperature. So you've got to have a little spray system yeah. to, to cool the condenser outside. Yeah, they, they will start to become much more popular than they have been, I think. Well, mm. I was going to patent it a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much for your time today, yeah. Alan. Okay, my pleasure. We've been talking to Alan Pierce from RMIT about energy efficiency. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia and on the community radio network. Previous episodes of this show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, please go to the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week.
Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.